Our New Testament lesson is found in Colossians chapter 2. We are reading verses 11 through 15 this morning. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we come striving not to forget all of your benefits, and yet we know that our hearts are dull and that we're slow, that we have apathy and indifference within us, and that we are quick to forget. And so, Lord, we come in all of our weakness, and we ask that you would teach us. Remind us again. Grant us a fresh sight and understanding of all that is ours in your Son. We ask that you speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Elon Musk is purported to be the world's wealthiest man. The measure of these things, of course, is tricky. He's well known in American culture. He is the founder of SpaceX. He is the CEO of Tesla and he's the owner of Twitter. He's revered for his unorthodox management style that perplexes many. A recent article in the Wall Street Journal details that management style, and Musk discusses it and says that the key to his management is recovering what he calls first principles. He even created a school devoted to this concept of first principles. The idea here is that complex problems can be solved, complex problems can be broken down and addressed by returning to the core, a kernel of truth. Assumptions fall away and what is known, what is true is to be held and then you reason up from there. It's the process that he believes is necessary before new solutions to complex problems can be developed. Of course, this is not a thought, it's not a philosophy that's just new or native to Elon Musk. Christians have had their own concepts of first principles. That is, in the face of complex problems and challenging situations, it is wise to return to the base and the foundation, the ground, the first principles of our faith. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul uses the language there of the things of first importance in the midst of challenges in the church in which there were false teachings, complex problems. Paul finding it extraordinarily helpful to return to those first principles, those things of first importance to challenge and to build. And in Colossians, we find the Apostle Paul reasoning in the very same way, reasoning that it's important to retreat to these first principles of the gospel. 
in order to challenge false teaching that was infiltrating and making its way into this young church in Colossae. And in Colossians 2, Paul's aim is simple. It is to convince us of the sufficiency of Jesus as we encounter complex, the complex problem of human sin. And his goal is simple. It is to persuade us that nothing else is needed, that no other mediators, that no other spiritual practices are needed in order to establish your communion with God. And so to communicate this, in verses 11 through 15, he continues his argument, and he takes us into the depths of the benefits of the gospel, these things that belong to us because we are united to Jesus, those benefits that are ours because of him. And it's here in these verses that we see three things that are to convince us, three things that are to persuade us, three things that are to induce us to turn away from the supplements and to find the authentic article in the first principles of the benefits of the gospel. And so we'll consider these three things this morning. First, the severance of sin's power. Secondly, the discharge of sin's debt. And then finally, the defeat of sin's master. These three first principles of the gospel. First, in verses 11 through 12, we see our severance from sin's power. It's here in Colossians 2, and in these verses 11 through 12, that Paul pulls back on the Old Testament sign of circumcision. Circumcision was the sacrament, the rite of entrance into the Old Testament covenant community. We have this sign replaced in the new covenant by the sign of baptism, also the sacrament of initiation. But circumcision was important still in Paul's world, and especially in speaking with other Jewish Christians, because it involved a cutting away of flesh. And it was that flesh that symbolized uncleanness. And so one was brought into the covenant community by the cutting away of that flesh, but there was a spiritual reality that that cutting away was pointing to. And that was that the person, the individual, who received the sign of circumcision was then to be yielded to God, to live a life of serving him. But of course the problem, or the hindrance, to living a life yielded to God is what Paul calls in verse 11, the body of the flesh. This is not referred to our physical body. That is to the body you have as a human being. But what Paul refers to there in using this term, the body of the flesh, is he's referring to our sinful nature. What we find elsewhere in the New Testament, in Colossians 3, actually the next chapter, or in Romans 6, or in Ephesians chapter 3, He's referring to the old man, the sinful nature, the old self under the dominion and control and power of sin. And spiritually uncircumcised flesh, Paul says, is dead, that it's under the power of sin, and it can do nothing to resist the control of sin. And he states this universally, that this problem does not belong to just a few people. But actually, this is the universal problem of all human beings, that this is the problem we have given ourselves over to. This is the problem when we are left 
unto ourselves. But Paul indicates something quite phenomenal here. What he indicates is that in our conversion, when we place our faith in Jesus, when all that is promised to us in baptism takes, and when we, when we believe and when we look to Jesus as we are united to him, that we share in Jesus' death and in Jesus' resurrection. And the body of flesh that once dominated us, the body of flesh that once controlled us, the body of flesh that once held us in death, that that body of flesh has now died. And it's not because you killed it. It's not because you crucified it. It's not because you took matters into your own hands and conquered it. No, what has happened is that Jesus has done this for you. That by believing in him, you share in his death. And the body of flesh is crucified. And so, friends, this gift is accomplished for you, and it's outside of you. It's done by another on your behalf. You were buried, and you were raised to new life. You have been severed from the body of flesh by the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Several years ago, as a young pastor, preaching on this subject out of Romans 6, a very similar passage, and I received an email from a young husband in the congregation, and he was struggling with several different sinful habits. And in the email, it was a heartfelt cry. He was seeking help. And he says, what you're saying about dying and rising, it sounds good, but it just doesn't seem true for me. Subjectively, in his experience of life, it didn't seem true. But friends... In further conversation, what is so important with my friend there today and with you here now is that our subjective experience of this doesn't determine the truth of it, that the truth is grounded and based in the accomplishment of Jesus, that in his death and in his resurrection, he has severed you from the body of flesh. That is undeniable. It's accomplished for you. And friends, he sets us upon the path just like the Israelites emancipated from Egypt. They weren't done with Egypt. Pharaoh was still chasing them, and they had all their remembrances of Egypt. How many times did they say it would be better for us back in Egypt? They were on the way to the promised land. But friends, they had been emancipated from the control. And this is the same situation we are in today. We've been freed from the controlling power of sin, but we have not been freed from its presence. It still harasses us. But what we are told to believe is that Jesus has severed you from that controlling power, and by faith we are to grab hold of this and to appropriate it and to apply it, asking God to continue to change our affections and our desires, that we move out and away from that former life of sin. But this is the great benefit. You've been severed from sin's control. And second, Paul goes on in verses 13 and 14, where we see here our discharge from sin's debt. Paul explains here that we've been made alive in Christ. Consider his words. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, that is Christ, 
having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He explains how this new life has commenced. And this new life has commenced when we have been forgiven of all our trespasses by, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. And friends, sin incurs a debt because sin is this deep relational revolt. It is an offense that takes place in which we prefer and choose our own wisdom over the wisdom of God. That we say yes to ourselves and we say no to the law of God. And so this is not simply a small thing in which we break an arbitrary rule of God, but rather we revolt against God and we choose our own way rather than his. It's conscious, it's active, it's a turning away from. And friends, this is what human sin is and it incurs a debt before God. And so what Paul explains here is that there is now a legal demand against us. Having broken this law, having broken this relationship, there is a demand of justice against us. That God doesn't just simply overlook human sin. There is an accusation against us. And that accusation, friends, is not baseless. It is grounded in truth. The accusation against you, the accusation against me, is loaded with facts. There has been a discovery and the evidence is there. There is an indictment and it's an indictment based in fact. It's rooted in truth. That there is a legal demand against our life that we're worthy of death. But you note here something, the remarkable turn at the end of verse 14, the simple words, this he set aside. God set it aside. He set aside the legal demand. That is not that he just forgot about it and acted like it wasn't important. Please note how he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. This is what God did to establish and to satisfy the legal demand. The legal demand of justice against sin, the penalty that was due. He sent his only son to pay that penalty, to give forth the justice that was required, and he satisfied it, what was legally owed. And friends, because the one who gave himself was the righteous one, without sin, this forgiveness is complete. Notice that he says, all your trespasses. He doesn't say some. He doesn't say just the ones you feel bad about. He doesn't say the ones you just committed 20 years ago. He says all, all of them, that the forgiveness is definitive, that the forgiveness is objective, that it's accomplished by someone outside of you. He doesn't ask you to supplement it. He doesn't ask you to clean yourself up to somehow earn it. He does it on your behalf. And friends, the apostle invites us to take hold of that great benefit of being discharged from sin's debt by looking in faith to Jesus who was nailed on the cross on our behalf. And finally, as we come to verse 15, 
we see the third benefit, this first principle of the gospel, where we see the defeat of sin's master. Verse 15, the apostle turns the argument and says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Modern Western culture, we are a bit shy about this topic where the Apostle Paul explains that there are hostile spiritual powers in our world. C.S. Lewis reminds us that perhaps the devil's greatest trick in Western culture is to have convinced us that he doesn't exist. But for the Apostle Paul, he understood that there were rulers and authorities they were, that were aligned against our best interest. Rulers and authorities that worked against us and worked against God, that they are active agents and that there's a chief and a master, one we call Satan. It's important to appreciate the context of that title, Satan, because it simply means accuser. And the accuser is one who deceives and manipulates. He's the serpent, the ancient one in the garden. And he manipulates and deceives in order to bring us into his own accusation. Because once we have turned against God, his accusation is not baseless. His accusation has grounds. And friends, it's important for us to understand how the ancient law court works where we get this term accuser, that there were three parties to that law court, that there was a judge, that there was an accuser, and there is an accused. And the accuser comes and lays his claim against the accused, announcing that they have a claim on this person and they want the judge to rule on their behalf. And friends, this is what the rulers and authorities, this is what the devil, this is what Satan does, as he accuses you. And there is rightful grounds for him to accuse. And this is also what happened to our Lord Jesus, that he was accused. There was a charge nailed to the cross above him that he claimed to be the Son of God. He was accused. And he was taken down into death. But see, the great difference, friends, is that accusation was baseless and it was groundless. That we learn in the breadth of the New Testament that he is the righteous one in whom there was no sin. And so, yes, death laid claim to Jesus, and death took him down. But Peter reminds us that death couldn't hold him because there was no sin. The accusation was empty. There could be no indictment because there was no evidence. And friends, then God vindicates Jesus, that the judge steps in, the judge intervenes, because the one who had been claimed and taken down into death could not be held there. And so he rises from the dead, vindicated, righteous. He is granted glory, and it is in that resurrection that he destroyed the power of death. And he disarms the rulers and authorities, that they cannot touch you. And it's in his resurrection that he destroys the power of the flesh, the very power that once captivated us and held us in death, in being dead to our trespasses and sins, we are raised to new life and granted new possibilities and hopes, even in this life. And in his resurrection, 
He discharges the debt. The legal demands that weigh in against you. And he settles those demands by his offering of himself. Friends, these are the great benefits of the gospel. Since power, we've been severed from that. Since debt has been discharged. Since master has been defeated. That our Lord Jesus has risen in triumph. And the one who was shamed has now exposed all of those rulers and authorities to open shame. And he leads them in his own triumph. And as we grasp those great benefits, Paul is taking us into a site that we need nothing else. You need no other supplement of the gospel. You don't need anything extra to clean you up. You don't need anything further in order to have communion with God. Because the Son of God who gave himself and the Son of God who rose and the Son of God who ascended, that he is now in his human flesh pleading on your behalf and interceding for you. And he welcomes you. He brings you to the Father because he is the sufficient one. He alone has accomplished this great victory for you. During the past week, as Melissa has been away, the Colson men have had copious amounts of time for television. Attempt, in an attempt to be productive, I found the miniseries on John Adams fascinating, reminding me of a host of history I've forgotten. And in the miniseries, it reminded me of the Constitutional Convention in 1787. Ben Franklin walks out from the convention and a crowd of, not protesters, but interested parties approach him. And they say, sir, what type of government have the delegates given us? Franklin shrewdly responded. He said, a republic, if you can keep it. Franklin understood that political liberty was something that had to be actively maintained. And friends, there's something even truer about his statement for us, not as Americans, but as Christians, that we have been given a freedom, but that freedom must be maintained, not with extra spiritual disciplines and not with extra mediators, but that liberty, that freedom must be maintained by declaring and proclaiming, by holding fast that Jesus is the one sufficient grounds of our communion with God, that he is the one who satisfied the debt, and we don't let any accusation then impinge against us or convince us that we don't belong. All our trespasses forgiven, that he has severed us from sin's control, and no matter our subjective feelings and how crushed we may be, we know that nothing can change that truth, that this is what is true, no matter how dark the struggle is, and that Jesus has disarmed all the authorities, that the one who was shamed and stripped and exposed, left to die upon a cross, that that shame turned into great victory that he triumphed over death itself, defeating its master. Friends, this is what our Lord Jesus has done. And he welcomes us to hold fast to these first principles, that this is ours. Hold to it and look to him in faith. Let's ask for his help. Almighty God,
our everlasting and loving Father. We give thanks to you for all your great benefits that you have bestowed upon us in your Son. The victory that is ours, not based on any of our own accomplishments, not rooted in any achievement, not founded upon any of our own accolades, but simply upon the victory of Jesus and all that he has done for us. And it is in him and in him alone that we come. And we come with confidence because he intercedes, he mediates, and we are welcomed by you in him alone. And so hear us today as we bring our prayers and our supplications to you on behalf of our world and behalf of ourselves. Gracious Father, we do ask that you grant us grace to resist being, avoiding being taken captive by teaching that steals the liberties that are ours in Jesus. Help us to know every benefit that is ours in him and may we not forget them. May we appropriate the gift of forgiveness. May we appropriate the gift of new life. Free us from a heavy conscience. Free us from a lack of peace. And free us from all that holds us in our old selves. Fill our hearts with thanksgiving. Captivate us with the redemption that is ours in Jesus. And Father, today we also give thanks for all of our fathers and for those who have also shown us paternal care for examples, for sacrifice, for all that has been given to us in this earthly life. We are mindful today and we give thanks. And we ask God that in this congregation you would strengthen all of our fathers to be godly examples and to build up godly homes that would honor you and love you and worship you, holding fast to the first principles given to us in the gospel. And this morning we also pray for our city. We ask that the people of Jacksonville may know you and walk in your ways through faith in Jesus Christ. Draw men and women out of darkness into light through the preaching of your word. We particularly ask that you bless our ministry partner, Seamark Ranch, serving children from families in crisis. We ask that you continue to provide for all the financial needs of the ranch. We ask that you sustain the house parents in their tireless, tireless labors for the children. And we ask that you work in the hearts of the kids, that they will believe in Jesus and walk with him in light of the great benefits that he brings to all who have faith. We pray for all our governing authorities, particularly our city council and mayor, our state legislature and governor, our courts and our president, asking that you endow these men and women with wisdom to govern well, guiding our nation and our state in paths of justice and righteousness, incline their hearts to you. We pray for those who lead our church, for pastors, for elders, and for deacons. Fill each of them with the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of you, that we may be good stewards of your word and good shepherds within your flock. Help us, God. And merciful God, you are the God of all comfort. 
We pray for those who are sick. We pray for those who grieve. And we pray for those who suffer today in our community. We particularly remember Sue Forsyth as she continues to struggle with back pain. We remember Elizabeth Garnett living with stage four brain cancer. We remember Gar Garganius also struggling with cancer, Wayne Noble, Sandy Reynolds, and for all the unspoken requests that trouble our congregation today, we lift those to you as well. We ask you to extend comfort to each in need, reminding them that nothing in all of creation can separate them from your love in Christ Jesus our Lord. Have mercy, God. And Father, we remember that our Lord Jesus took up children in his arms and that he blessed them. And so we remember the children and youth of this congregation today, asking that you will bless them as they grow up in the knowledge of you. Forgive their sins, write your law upon their hearts, grant them to delight in you, finding life and light in Jesus Christ. These things we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.